Hello, everyone. This is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today, we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. spooky season here and some people apparently are, are celebrating whether they went to or not yeah did you guys hear about this the uh the iowa family's basement that got flooded with blood <laughs> that's funny the blood usually gets off on the third floor <laughs> <laughs> did you guys hear about this yeah they uh but before we we start thinking about like Covens and cults and all that fun shit. They lived next door to a slaughterhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Their neighbor was a giant pig processing plant. I, I have the um, I have the story here. Uh, the Lestina family of Bagley, Iowa, said they never had an issue with Dolls Custom Meat Locker located next door until recently when their basement filled with blood, fat, and bones from slaughtered animals. I wonder how the bones got in. Because <laughs> I'm told it came up. Through the floor. <laughs> That's my story is that it came up through the floor. Yeah. It didn't like slough in through one of the windows or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think they know because I guess they yeah. weren't home when it happened. But I, I want to know who was like working night shift at the pig plant and then like looks over and like, uh-oh. <laughs> See, like, <laughs> everything running down the sidewalk directly into their living room. Yeah. So apparently they, they had... The people at this slaughterhouse had no idea that the waste material flushed from their slaughter room, which metal, <laughs> would end up backed into the neighbor's basement. Uh, she said, "We're taking responsibility. We're taking responsibility for it. It wasn't our fault. We didn't intentionally put the blood down there. We didn't want this to happen." Um, well, I'm, I'm glad there's no hard feelings. Yeah, uh, she said that the uh, that there was a pipe that was shared with the fam with the family, so there must have been a shared pipe between the okay, two. So, okay, so okay, so they did come up through the floor. Could you imagine the fucking bones coming up? <laughs> Listen, I, Ooh, man, I, I, I've lived kind of an adventurous life. Uh, I've spent a decent amount of time like on a pig farm. Yeah, I don't know if you gentlemen have, but good god, the smell. Yeah, like that's you have to condemn the house. Like nothing smells as bad as a pig farm. Maybe Ooh, maybe yeah. a paper mill. But there's a there's a, a a photo here I'm looking at. There is like four inches of blood. Oh yeah, it's a decent in this, amount. In this basement. It's it's nuts. These guys are up to their ankles in it. Who the fuck is plumbing in a house and just like runs the slaughter room pipe and just connects it, like just ties it right in? Well, we don't know that the slaughterhouse was there first. Oh, that's true. I don't know. Somebody made a mistake somewhere. What the fuck? If they market this to the right crowd, Glenn Danzig just bought that house for four hundred and eighty thousand dollars. <laughs> Just becomes a just becomes a, a venue for black metal shows. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, big mistake there. Speaking of mistakes, you're listening to uh, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Everybody, how you doing? I'm Rob North. I am your co-host Chris Miller, and we are joined once again by our good friend Kyle Graper. Kyle, what's going on, man? I need yeah. sleep. Okay, <laughs> thanks for the you wave. Can't, you can't just wave, Kyle. Is, there, yeah, buddy. yeah. We don't have we don't have video right now, Kyle. You gotta wait. You gotta. <laughs> If you're if you're like waving, like tap it out. Yeah, Morse code, something like that. This is gonna be a long podcast. If you're Morse code. <laughs> hey, watch your language. Hey, <laughs> my mother not, is a saint. You do so. 
Yeah, uh, what are we talking about today? So we're getting out of the realm of ancient history like we had with uh, King John. And we're moving into the 20th century. And we're kind of walking away from, you know, the, the, the dry historical stuff. We're moving kind of into the realm of true crime and conspiracy theory today. It, and we're going to lean a little bit more to the conspiracy side here just mm-hmm. kind of because. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun because today we're talking about the case of D.B. Cooper. So if you don't know who D.B. Cooper was, D.B. Cooper was the pseudonym given to a mysterious, unidentified man who hijacked a plane in 1971 and mysteriously disappeared during the hijacking, setting off a manhunt followed by a wave of stories, conspiracy theories, and speculation about his final fate. Now what's going to make this episode even more interesting is that only part of our episode is going to be dedicated to telling the story of the event, because later Kyle, Chris, and I We'll each be sharing our favorite theory as to who Cooper really was and what may have actually happened to him. And then a fight to the death at the end to see who's right about it. Yeah. We will settle this in the crucible of armed combat. Is it going to start out with just me and you while we chain <clears throat> Kyle back to the radiator in the basement? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> we got to give Kyle like a, a quick protein bar. Try to, get his, yeah. try, try to get his stamina back up. Make it even. Yeah, enjoy it, buddy. This is your hour of yard time. <laughs> You don't want to know where I hid the bastard file. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, the old prison wallet. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Keith. All right. Well, let's get into it. Let's mm-hmm. let's do a little DB. And let's, uh... I kind of feel like everybody that's listening to this already knows the story. Maybe. You know, I kind of get the feel. Like, I feel like we have a pretty DB-heavy crowd. Like, Probably. If there's a Venn diagram of like people who listen to this and people who know who D.B. Cooper is, it's a it's circle. A circle. Yeah. So. <laughs> but for anybody else who may, who may have stumbled upon this, first, our sincerest apologies. But hey, we all knew the story, but I think we are we all had fun researching it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just so incredibly batshit crazy that skipping it would be a disservice to all of you. All right. Well, gentlemen, please... Uh, Fasten your seatbelts, put your seats in the full upright position, and prepare for takeoff. But because this happened in the 70s, we can still smoke as much as we want. Yes, we can. <laughs> and we can pay cash for the ticket. Hell yeah. I love the 70s. It was fly at your own risk. The dude just walked up, paid cash for a plane ticket, and got on. Yep. So, on November 24th, 1971, Thanksgiving Eve, a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case walked up to the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport in Oregon, identifying himself as Dan Cooper, and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket to Seattle aboard Flight 305. He boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727, and took his seat, which was, depending on which source you consult, either seat 18C, 18E, or 15D, towards the rear of the passenger cabin. Cooper then lit a cigarette, ordered a bourbon and soda, and settled in for the short 30-minute flight. Other passengers and flight staff described Cooper as between 5'10 and 6 feet tall, in his mid-40s wearing a black raincoat, loafers, a dark suit, a neatly pressed collared white shirt, a black clip-on tie, and a mother-of-pearl tie clip. Now, Flight 305 departed on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific time with three flight crew, three cabin attendants, and 35 other passengers on board. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to flight attendant Flores Schaffner, who was seated near him by the aft stair door. Schaffner initially assumed that the note was just another phone number from another lonely businessman and dropped it unread into her purse, but Cooper leaned over to her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Could you imagine how many notes a stewardess in the 70s would have gotten from a a, a man quietly smoking and drinking a bourbon and soda? 
Like, what? Did he really think she was just going to read it? Like, guarantee it had a phone number What's or a hotel? daily number, you think? Oh, man. Like, just think about Mad Men. Just think about, like, <laughs> like, like all the Don Drapers of the world yeah. just constantly handing out folded cocktail napkins to yeah, just but it, but every available woman. But it's Especially the, it's a steward. But it's, it's the 1970s, is. so everybody has the hair and facial hair of ancient goths. <laughs> So it's, the, instead of wearing a black suit, white shirt, it's a like a brown corduroy jacket yeah. and like really long lapels. Some <laughs> sort of paisley print on the shirt. <laughs> so the note printed neatly in all capital letters with a felt tip pen apparently stated very much the same thing. Although its exact wording is unknown because Cooper reclaimed the note. Now Cooper requested that Schaffner sit down beside him and she complied, asking to see the bomb. Now, Cooper, I love that. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you, fuck you. That, that, I have a bomb, fuck yourself. It's either fuck you, show me, or it's... Can, can I see it? Can, can I, I see, see it? it? <laughs> no, you don't, you fucking liar. <laughs> you phony. So, so Co- Cooper then opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders attached to wires coated in red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. Cooper then stated his demands. $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency, worth $1.24 million in today's, in today's money, uh, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Schaffner relayed these instructions to the pilots, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing the now-famous dark sunglasses that we see in the Wanted posters. Now, Flight 305's pilot, Bill Scott, contacted Seattle Air Traffic Control, and within minutes, federal and local authorities were made aware of the hijacking. The president of Northwest Orient ordered all employees to cooperate fully with Cooper's demands and authorize the payment of the ransom. The other passengers were told by the captain that a mechanical difficulty was going to delay their arrival in Seattle, and Flight 305 then began to spend nearly two hours circling Puget Sound while the money and parachutes were assembled. Now, one of the more curious aspects of this part of the event is Cooper's behavior. He never left his seat. He never made his intentions known to the other passengers. He appeared familiar with the local terrain, remarking to flight attendants things like how, quote, that looks like Tacoma down there. And he also knew that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from SeaTac Airport. He was calm, well-spoken, and polite to everyone. And Tina Mucklow, another flight attendant, described him thus, quote, he wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful, kind, and calm all the time, end quote. Corporate, uh, Cooper ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, even, be- even <laughs> attempted to give Florence Schaffner the change as a tip, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during their time on the ground in Seattle. What's interesting about his behavior is also how it contrasts to the normal behaviors of hijackers at the time at least in popular stereotypes. Now, plane hijackings weren't new. There'd basically been hijackings almost as long as there'd been passenger planes. But up until the beginning of the 1970s, they were very uncommon, limited mostly in the U.S. to hardened criminals or political dissidents demanding to be flown to Cuba. But the 1970s would become the decade of hijackings as various dissident and terrorist groups began to use that as a primary tactic. And we can argue that with Cooper, this is where it starts to shift. Uh, But after two hours, at 5.24 p.m., Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and 15 minutes later, the plane landed at Seattle Airport. 
Cooper instructed Captain Scott to taxi to a well-lit, isolated area and had the flight crew drop the window shades, presumably to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient Seattle operations manager Al Lee approached the aircraft and handed off a backpack filled with cash and the parachutes, and Cooper then released all the passengers, Florence Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock. So the plane is refueled, and Cooper outlines his next demands to the flight crew. A southeast course towards Mexico City with a stop to refuel in Reno, Nevada, uh, flying at a maximum altitude of 10,000 feet and at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, about 115 miles an hour. He also demanded that the landing gear remain deployed, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and that the cabin remain unpressurized. He then demanded that the crew take off, but both the flight crew and Northwest Orient Airlines objected, and here's why. The Boeing 727 has something you don't see in aircraft anymore. It has a rear ramp with a boarding staircase on it that drops from the tail cone of the plane, and it was up these stairs that the cash and chutes had been delivered, and to take off with the ramp still dropped was going to be very unsafe. Uh, not to mention, flying with the ramp down is difficult. <laughs> it would be incredibly unpleasant to be inside of an aircraft that has a door open. Yes. <clears throat> no matter how low your altitude or how, how slow the and the, and the higher you go, yeah. the worse it's going to get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Cooper finally relented to having the ramp closed. And at 7.40 p.m., the 727 took off again with five people aboard. Pilot Bill Scott, co-pilot William Radishak, flight engineer H.E. Anderson, flight attendant Lisa Mucklow, and Cooper. The aircraft turned southeast, tailed by two F-106 fighter jets from McCord Air Force Base. Now, Cooper told Lisa Mucklow to join the flight crew in the cockpit and to remain inside with the door closed, and as she departed the cabin, she observed Cooper tying something around his waist. At approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit to indicate that the rear air stair ramp had been deployed, and the crew soon noticed a definitive change in air pressure, indicating that the rear ramp was indeed open. At 8.13 p.m., the plane's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require the crew to maneuver to bring the aircraft back to level flight, indicating that a significant weight change on the very rear of the aircraft ramp had just occurred. The crew heard nothing more from the cabin until 10.15, when the aircraft landed in Reno, and what a dicey landing that must have been. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As the, the damn ramp is still deployed. Right. It's <laughs> Yeah, very much so. <clears throat> Here's the thing, you're bringing that aircraft in, it is overcorrecting for you. Yeah, every time you'd try, to, you'd try to pitch a little to the right, it would catch and shoot you to the left, yeah. and the whole time you'd just be wiggling. It would be terrible. The stress on the airframe must have been absolutely terrifying as a pilot. Yeah. Like, the plane's basically trying to shake itself apart. It had to be a very, very rough landing. Not to mention the fact that the way an airplane comes in to land, the way the flaps are deployed, that ramp hit the ground oh, before, yeah. the, oh, definitely. before the landing gear did. So you just have this crunch and this grinding before you finally touch That's that why all deployed. aircraft should still employ the stairs that the Beatles used all the time. There is nothing better than getting off an airplane and going down those Beatles stairs, oh, like the, with the blue fun. family, the blue family stair car, <laughs> and you get to walk down the stairs and you feel like a goddamn rock star every single time. Stand, stand up there, wave the double piece sign like Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> God, I miss Nixon. <laughs> that, that makes one of you. We'll, say, we'll save a Nixon one. It's, it, now we're seeing like the warmer, cuddlier side of Nixon. Man, what a change, huh? So. You people all owe me an apology. 
You think Ellen's gonna go to a football game with his corpse? Oh God! <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! So the aircraft did end up landing safely. So well done to the flight crew. No one is injured, and soon Reno police and federal agents conducted an armed sweep of the aircraft and found that Cooper was no longer on board. He had indeed jumped out the back of a moving airliner. And none of the aircraft trailing the Northwest Orion 727 had seen anyone jump out of the back ramp, and nothing appeared on radar. So the investigation into the hijacker's identity and the search for him began immediately. Witnesses were interviewed, evidence was gathered, sketches were made, and the manhunt began. Local police and FBI agents began questioning suspects and immediately considered more than 800 people, one of whom was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Now, he was quickly ruled out as a suspect by the FBI as he he had an alibi for the time of the flight. But James Long, an Oregon reporter rushing to meet a deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker, Dan Cooper. A couple of wire service reporters repeated the error, and the moniker D.B. Cooper became stuck in the public's collective memory. The next challenge became where to look for him. So several uh, small variations in uh, such as slight deviances in the aircraft's flight path, the length of time he might have waited to pull the ripcord on the parachute if he was even able to pull it at all, and wind speed and direction could change his projected landing point by miles. Now, authorities narrowed the search area to around the Lewis River in southwest Washington, and hundreds of police, sheriff's deputies, and federal agents began combing the area, aided by helicopters, fixed-wing aircraft, and hundreds of Army personnel from nearby Fort Lewis. But after weeks of searching and with winter settling in, no trace of Cooper was found. Searching resumed after the spring thawed throughout 1972. Marine salvage firms were contracted to use submersibles to comb the local lakes, and large efforts of civilian volunteers were coordinated. Now, as a matter of fact, two local women did stumble upon a body, (laughs) which happened to be the skeletal remains of a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks previously. Uh, As an interesting aside, some investigators have hypothesized that this poor girl may have actually been one of the early victims of either Samuel Little, who was starting to look like he may have been the most prolific serial killer in modern American history with nearly 100 likely victims. Well, what did he just confess to? Like 75? (laughs) 93, Uh, I think. 93. Um, Or possibly one of the earlier victims for David Parker Ray, the famed toy box killer. Oh, Jesus. Now, although this is all still just conjecture, but it's an interesting thought. And we're all about conspiracies today. Yes, we are. Now, by the time search operations were suspended in June 1972, what is arguably one of the larger, more extensive search and recovery operations in U.S. history had uncovered Bupkis. Um, It's also been put forth that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which is in the area where Cooper disappeared, may have obliterated any remaining physical evidence. (laughs) So the FBI went on to distribute the serial numbers of the ransom money, but despite rewards offered both by the federal authorities and by various journalistic outlets for the recovery of the money, of the $10,020 bills used to pay the ransom, only 290 of them have ever been found. All of them by an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram, who was digging around in a riverbank on the Columbia River. They were found in three bundles. Most of the bills were significantly disintegrated, but they were in the correct order with the matching serial numbers. And in 1986, the bills were divided up between Ingram, Northwest Orient's insurer, because the man always has to get his, Yep and the FBI. Now, Ingram later sold 15 of the bills at auction for $37,000. Wow. 
Uh, the only other piece of evidence found since the event was in 1978, when a deer hunter found a placard printed with the instructions for lowering the aft air stairs of a Boeing 727 along the That's one of my favorite, line. like, weird finds. Yeah. People always say, like, they, oh, oh, we just found the parachute. Well, that's impossible. Like, it, yeah. it, it would not have survived 40 years. No. No. And then and he actually found the placard along a logging road that was under the basic flight path of the mm-hmm. hijacked plane. Now, I can't imagine there's that many Boeing 727-100 rear ramp instruction placards. Yeah. Let alone one just randomly showing mm-hmm. up in the woods in freaking Washington. But the one, the one thing that we can guarantee happened is that there was a man in the back of the plane whenever yep. the ramp opened. We know that this happened. <laughs> so anything of value is going to get sucked out. <laughs> in- <laughs> including the man. man. <laughs> like it, That speed and that altitude, it would have been really, really unpleasant. Been, yeah, and it was also in a driving side. rainstorm. Yeah, it was. They were in the middle of a storm. There well. were planes. There were two uh, U.S. military fixed-wing aircraft in pursuit of the air in pursuit of the seven twenty-seven, and they never saw anything. There were they, actually four, but they, they, had, they had two Air Force F one hundred sixes, and then the Oregon Air, air National Guard. It was say it was the National there were, Guard there were two where the T thirty-three Tweedy Bird trainers that were yeah. also flying along. It was the one hundred sixes. It was yeah. the one hundred sixes that they had said they had to get so close to it they were afraid they were going to like with the wind shear, people couldn't see shit. Yeah, they were getting. We're relying on instruments. They're like, we're afraid we're going to hit this thing. Yeah. Like, only periodically would you be able to see the lights. The storm was that bad. Yeah. And they couldn't reach a a better altitude because it would have ripped the plane apart. Mm -hmm. And they also had to remain out of Cooper's sight lines. Yeah. Possibly. Because they don't... That's actually standard practice Mm -hmm. when you have military planes trailing a hijacked aircraft. Because planes actually have rear-view mirrors. They sure do. <laughs> well, and they knew he intended yeah. to open the rear staircase. Yep. Yeah, so they have to stay above and below the and, and above and below the plane. Yeah, and the, the pilot said that even if even if the guy would have jumped out and deployed the chute, they probably still wouldn't have seen him. Man, can you imagine if he it was a rainstorm at night? Landed on the water just, <laughs> just smushed against the windscreen. <laughs> it's like the end of True Lies. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. Okay, so since 1972, uh, subsequent analyses have shown that the initial search area may have been significantly off because of the lack of decent navigation in this massive rainstorm, and amateur and independent investigators have spent many years trying to track down Cooper's whereabouts, his fate, or the missing money. Here's the challenge, though. Pretty much the whole area where Cooper is believed to have landed, either based on the original estimate or with new variations, is mountainous wilderness. Mm -hmm. There is... Very, very little signs of, very, very few signs of civilization in that part of southern Washington. It's a rainforest. Yeah. It's an actual rainforest. Google it. I promise. Now, what this, is, this has also led to a whole lot of conspiracy-minded people and internet sleuths actually taking to the woods. <laughs> uh, a good many of them without any wilderness skills or survival training. And most of them, I don't want to be insulting here, but most of them are not in the best physical shape. Mm-hmm. So what's sad and yeah, they, ironic... They've kept, uh, they've kept the park rangers very busy. Yeah. Well, what's sad and ironic is that m- multiple people searching for D.B. Cooper have gone missing or died. And in the decades since the event, dozens of people have been arrested, tried, and convicted for fraud for either pretending to be Cooper or trying to cash in on saying they'd found some of the bills from the ransom money. Uh, some of them going so far as to actually make counterfeit bills. And now, yeah, yeah. Well done. You wanted to be famous. Now you've committed a federal crime. Yeah, you've committed a federal crime. And even if like, oh shit, you are DB Cooper. Yeah. 
Now you're extra fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, now they got you on air piracy. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I was mentioning to you guys earlier that they actually um, did away with the statute of limitations on the crime. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, I forget exactly how they did this, but uh, yeah, so in 1976, um, a Portland grand jury returned an indictment in absentia against John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy and violations of the Hobbs Act thereby making the trial active. And so the indictment formally initiated a prosecution that could be continued and would continue no matter when he was apprehended in the future. So basically they said bye-bye to the statute of limitations on the crime. Now the FBI didn't suspend their investigation until July of 2016, 45 years after the events in our story, making it one of the longest active investigations on federal law, in federal law enforcement history. A 60-volume case file has been compiled, and local FBI offices do continue to accept legitimate physical evidence related to the case. So, the legacy of D.B. Cooper is a peculiar one, and I want to talk about this for a second before we get on into the, kind of our discussion of, of his true identity. So, Cooper in many ways had emerged as something of a folk hero rather than a villain, as, as you said, Chris, a bit of a Robin Hood. There's definitely a Robin Hood kind of, yeah. kind of vibe to this dude. Uh, because he managed to not ever be found, despite the massive law enforcement effort uh, to track him down, and because he seemed to—he uh, never seemed really to have that much intent on actually harming anyone. Um, of course, multiple books have been written about the whole thing. Uh, many conspiracy theories are batted about all over the internet, and the events of November twenty fourth, nineteen seventy one, have led to uh, many works of fiction as well. Uh, especially J.D. Reed's 1980 novel Freefall, which is an interesting read, um, which then also uh, spawned a movie the next year with I think Donald Sutherland in it. Hmm. I think um, I didn't I didn't watch the movie, but there are a lot of other movies too involving D.B. Cooper, including uh, Without. A, did you guys ever see Without a Paddle? Yes, yeah. sure did. Sure did. Uh, Did I ever see without a paddle? I watch Cabin Boy for fun. I know, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Man, oh, man, I hate those fancy lads. And there's the Cabin Boy <laughs> reference. So, uh, Cooper's actions have also had an effect on air travel, marking the beginning of the end for unfettered uh, commercial airline travel. And in early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their baggage, which has set conspiracy theories uh, theorists off since then who believed that the Cooper hijacking was actually a false flag operation carried out by the federal government in order to restrict the civil liberties of air travelers and violate their Fourth Amendment rights. It, everything has to be a false flag. It has to be. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a rule. That is the rule. Like, that's, the, that's the conspiracy theory rule. There's two rules on the internet. One, if it exists, there's porn. Rule 34. It's rule 34. And the second rule is that anything that's ever happened in history has been a false flag operation by the United States government. Yeah, well, you missed the third one. Godwin's Law. (laughs) Oh, God. So the FAA uh, actually also started requiring that all Boeing 727s and McDonnell Douglas DC-9s, which also had the rear stair ramp, be fitted with a device that was later dubbed the Cooper Vane, which is a small latch device that actually uses airflow when the plane is in motion to push a small paddle down that latches this rear stairway shut from the outside. It actually uses air pressure to do it so that when the plane is on the ground and no longer moving, it releases and you can then drop the air stair. <laughs> uh, although, 
after the Cooper hijacking, many airlines just stopped using their rear air stair ramps altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the 727-100 aircraft used in the hijacking stayed in airline service until 1984, then spent a decade as a shuttle aircraft for civilian contractors to move between Air Force facilities. Uh, if you'd like to visit the plane today, its fuselage is still stored in an aircraft boneyard outside Memphis, Tennessee. There's a little <laughs> human interest piece there for you. Um, Road trip! Also, one weird final chapter to this story is that in April of 2013, uh, Earl Cossey, the owner of the skydiving school from which the parachutes <laughs> were furnished, was found dead in his Woodenville, Washington home. Killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Now, was his death in some way connected to the events of the Cooper case? Now, conspiracy nuts flared up again, claiming that his death was the government finally covering the tracks for their false flag operation. (laughs) But, of course, what actually happened is it was probably a robbery or a burglary going wrong. Yep. He was an old man. He wasn't that hard to overcome. It's Occam's razor with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, And also, to this day, Ariel, Washington, the largest town in the vicinity of the Cooper case search area, still holds D.B. Cooper Day every November 24th, which I think is kind of charming. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah. (laughs) That was Thanksgiving weekend when he hopped up. Yeah, really? Well, yeah, it was... It was, it was Thanksgiving weekend. That's what yeah, it was Wednesday. It bought, him, it bought him an extra day. Got him all that cash for Black Friday, yo. Right. Yeah, it bought him an extra day of search because they didn't want to dispatch yeah. anybody on Thanksgiving. <laughs> so it's, it said that was another reason. Yeah. He might be able to buy an, another day to get away because it nobody wants to pay him overtime. Nope. So, that is uh, pretty much the story of the events of the Cooper case. Some of them. Because I think, gentlemen, it is time... To get into our favorite theory. Let's tinfoil up. Let's Put on tin your tinfoil up. Let's get weird with it. So let's get into who we think might be the most likely candidate. Now my for who actually was D.B. Cooper. My pick. My pick for for the actual D.B. Cooper, the real McCoy. Yes, sir. Is none other than Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. Okay. Uh, Tell us about him. He was a Vietnam veteran, mm-hmm. Green Bray. Very, very good. I believe he won a Distinguished Flying Cross, mm-hmm. he, the Army Commendation Medal. He was a good, good soldier. Yeah, I mean, he was still, at the time, of this, I mean, this is post-Vietnam, he's still a National Guardsman, uh, an accomplished uh, recreational skydiver, and yeah. it should be one. known, uh, should be noted that he was a Mormon Sunday school teacher out of yeah. Provo, Utah. Um, uh, <coughs> airborne qualified, too, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, April 7th, 1972, uh, he does... He commits a copycat skyjacking. We have to call it copycat because we can't, we can't really pin him being DB Cooper on. Um, he sat in the same exact seat, in the same exact row, on the same exact plane that DB Cooper was on. Same I mean, not the same exact, yeah, same, yeah, same kind of plane. Yes, also Boeing um, seven twenty seven. Although to be fair, about half the planes in the air in the United were, States yeah, were Boeing seven Boeing seven twenty seven. So. He's on the plane and passes a note, passes a note to a stewardess. She actually checked it this time uh, and said that he had a hand grenade and a pistol and he was hijacking the plane. I believe the pistol was empty as it well. It was unloaded it was and the hand grenade was a paperweight. Yeah, it was a paperweight. <laughs> it was a novelty hand grenade. <laughs> it, was a, it was on a flight. Uh, it was Denver to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And when they landed in San Francisco, he demanded four parachutes and $500,000 cash and for the plane to be uh, refueled and then... Uh, to be redirected to Provo, Utah. So, with the exception of the suitcase bomb, we have a very, very similar MO. 
Oh, very much so. And uh, I did the same thing. Wait a minute. The Mormon wants to fly to Provo, Utah. Oh, no. I'm sorry. He was flying to... They were flying to Washington and by way of... The flight path would have taken them over because in Provo's where he bailed. Spoiler alert. He jumps out. Shocking. (laughs) Shocking that the Mormon jumps out. Yeah. So, and he... he Go to the promised land! He sits down in the back. He's he has a cigarette. He has a bourbon and soda. <laughs> but that's not an uncommon drink for the early seventies. No, this is before like vodka was even a thing. Like yeah. nobody drank vodka until the eighties. Surprise, surprise, boys and girls. That's the thing you know now. Um, yeah, man. Every everybody drank whiskey, and everyone had lots of pubic hair. Yep, those are two big things about the seventies. Yeah, <laughs> that's what Austin Powers missed. He would have enjoyed it so much. <laughs> that's the seventies, baby. Whiskey pubes and Watergate. So over Provo, <laughs> nice. over Provo, for the title, uh, as, for the, as for the, the crew, title of our more generic history podcast that will be coming up soon. <laughs> yeah, great pubes through history. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Kyle. Uh, the crew think, is the crew's in the front. Appropriate noises. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> Kyle's over here scraping his tongue. <laughs> so the little light comes on that the the tail ramp is down. Uh, whenever they they get to their their final destination, they lift the ramp because you can do that from the cockpit at this point. Yeah. They lift the ramp, land, oh, and then I forgot that yeah, the pilot changed the yeah oh yeah the pilots there. sent the stewardess to the back to look to make sure there wasn't an armed man back there, and she was like, "No, he's gone." Yeah, he gone. He gone. So it turns out, dude hopped out. He jumps feet first and begins spinning so incredibly violently. <laughs> That for more than half of his his descent, he is passing out from fear and nausea. Uh, it's also said that uh, he was tossing out parachutes. He tossed three as they went, so that it was more difficult to track which one was his. And this comes into play a little later. Um, the the duffel bag with the five hundred thousand dollars starts spinning him wildly out of control. <laughs> he finally comes to pulls his cord because it turns out this guy's an it's accomplished like an skydiver. In physics class. Yeah. So he deploys it, and he's still high enough where he can see Lake Utah, not the Great Salt Lake, Lake Utah by Provo, and he can see the roadblocks on the highways because everybody knows what's happening. Yeah. And he's able to kind of steer into farmland. So he's away from the lake because everybody assumes he's going to try to land in the lake and escape by boat. (laughs) He steers about a mile and a half away from the roadblocks, which gives him the opportunity to kind of slog his way through and around midnight he came on and they they don't say what it is but they call it a, a drive-in fast food restaurant so probably a mcdonald's yeah uh, time period the 70s. yeah there's a couple yeah i mean the there. mcdonald's the mcdonald's boom happened in the early 60s well, i don't know it's utah so it might be like a brigham burger or oh something jesus like christ I, oh, oh. well he's not oh, he's you not shit in my dick <laughs> he's not a good mormon because he did order a soda he reached into his duffel bag pulled out money he's not a good mormon because he ordered a bourbon <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> yeah so he orders the soda uh pays a kid five bucks yeah. to drive him home his wife's there, and he's like, "Yeah, listen, we gotta drive out to this culvert, and uh, we gotta we gotta find something." <laughs> so they go, and they find the the five hundred thousand dollars in a culvert, drives back to the house, and he starts stuffing it in like pipes, like like PVC tubes, and hastily, yeah. like barely even burying them, more like just kind of jamming them in the ground, which this comes up later in most hilarious fashion. <clears throat> 
the next day it comes up that this had happened. Got to be careful with those pipes, too. You don't it, want your basement to flood with pigs. <laughs> His buddy was a co-national guardsman. Happens to be a dispatcher for the highway patrol in Utah, yeah. and realizes there's like this is weird because he's been talking a lot about how easy it would be to just straight up jump on an airplane or jump out of an airplane. So he calls his sister-in-law, <laughs> and his sister-in-law is like, "Nah, he's he's doing army stuff." And the guy's like, "Really?" <laughs> so at five in the morning the next day, I'm in his unit, and nobody called yeah, me. Five a.m. the next day. Floyd McC- Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. drives to base, shows up. He's like, hey, everybody, I'm here doing Army stuff this weekend and is immediately apprehended by the FBI. Uh, they go to his house and they find $499,970 hastily jammed into like like tucked in couch cushions and like laying in the yard. In the pipes. Yeah, like they said it was like it, you could just see it. Like they tried to hide it, but it, you could just see money. Where's the other 30 bucks? That's the money that he used for, like, the coke and to pay that kid. So he just took $30 and just stopped, like, tried to hide the rest. Like, he just kept 30 for, Man, like... that's balls showing up for a $500,000 hijacking, but you got no cash in your wallet. 238 space bucks for lunch, gas, and tolls. <laughs> so he is apprehended because they are able to match his handwriting and fingerprint from a magazine that he was idly doodling in yeah. oh. on the plane on the way there and tucked it back in the... In the in the seat, yeah. Returned it and then hopped out of, a, uh, of an airplane at twenty five thousand feet. <laughs> yeah. So he is sentenced so to forty five years in prison. Who maintained he was innocent? Too. Maintained his innocence. So he was so innocent that two years later he escaped prison. By the way, none of that's in the FBI file. <laughs> yeah, that's, if, if you read the FBI no, file, it's in the FBI file. It's not in the article on FBI.gov yeah, it, it, as we it just stops. discovered. It stops at his sentencing. Like, that's an open and shut case, fellas. <laughs> so after two years, him and him and uh, two other accomplices with, and it says they're armed. Turns out the dude made a gun. He worked in the dentist's office, yeah. like as a clerk in the dentist's office. He was using basically like the the paste to make paper mache, yeah, casting paste, mm-hmm. oh. and like made a fake gun. Like the stuff. Well, they, they also used. had shivs, so it's like, it's a little bit different. Like the shit they used Dillinger. to cast my teeth yeah. for my. Fucking retainers. Oh, uh, you remember the, that pink Whoa. goo. Oh, uh, you'll never forget the taste of that weird pink goo. Now they use no, it. It's now, in my mouth now. Now they use it to make uh, chicken nuggets. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else. So they the hijack a garbage truck, smash through the gates. It'll do. And this is from Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, which is just north of Harrisburg. Yep. And they hightail it to, uh, they're, they're trying to make it to coastal Virginia. Um, along the way, Virginia they take a, a little detour. And uh, they rob a bank in Pollocksville, Virginia. Yeah. Ten grand. Make ten ten thousand smackaroos. Uh, his accomplice is Melvin D. Walker, who is serving a fifty-five year sentence, also for armed robbery, and probably maintained his innocence. Uh, they rented a room in Virginia Beach, and as soon as they got there, they started planning another bank robbery. Yeah. <laughs> so they drive to Tennessee in. And they keep stealing cars and changing license plates as they're going. So they make it to Tennessee, knock off the bank there for $76,000. Yeah. Uh, they rented a house and bought a, they bought an actual car under assumed aliases. What the fuck was going so on in the 70s? So <laughs> like, did you just like, and what's your name, sir? Yes. <laughs> so they buy, they buy a car, they buy a house. 
Uh, they decide that they are oh, going to. Those were re- the days when you could just really be a drifter. You know? Oh yeah. So they're gonna they're gonna split from Virginia Beach because it's too hot there. Because they they're starting to get paranoid. There's too much going on. Yeah, There's too many people like who've seen his face. Like his face is out there. White version of the Firefly family. I yeah. Love it. <laughs> and uh, they're going to head back one last time to Virginia Beach to pick up their stuff, take their belongings, pack up, and move to retire to a, it was an old farm in Tuskegee. Yeah. Um, they their plan was that they would park like two blocks away, uh, dress up in a tracksuit and pretend to jog, and that would be the signal. Like if somebody was if somebody was watching the place, uh, you would just jog back to the car and they'd leave. And if like if the the light was on, then it's cool. You can head on in. Like everything's good. So he's jogging past the house. He doesn't see anything, and he doesn't realize that an anonymous tipster told the FBI that that was his place. One of the prevailing theories is his wife was having an affair with one of the FBI agents. And after receiving a substantial sum of money in the mail, was like, eh, I'm good. (laughs) I'm about good with old Rick. (laughs) So he opens the door and he finds three uh, three FBI agents armed with shotguns. And he pulls a thirty-eight special, gets a round off before he catches three. Uh, He ends up bleeding to death. Uh, When was it? 91 days yeah. after his breakout. Um, Richard Ka- or Russell Calamay, who is the author of a book called D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. Uh, Bernie Rhodes and Russ Calamay were uh, both involved in both the Cooper, the search for Cooper, mm-hmm. and then again, the search for McCoy. Hmm. Um, yeah, Russ Calamay... Yeah, both of them were... were- out of the uh, the Portland field office, I correct. Think. And yeah, so it's, and after this, that, Calme retired to yeah. the Utah Highway Patrol. Yeah, and uh, he was there at the time. He was he wasn't one of the FBI agents that shot him, but he saw the body and he's like, "That's fucking DB Cooper." He asserts to this day, like he dismantled the alibis and all this, says that to this day that that's him, and nobody has like really more hands on Cooper experience than yeah. this guy, but. Man, what a fucking nightmare life this guy decided here's, to here's one of my He just won't stop robbing yeah. people. Here's one of my... Oh, they're little mayhem machines. I love mm-hmm. it. Oh, here's yeah. one of my favorite things that, that Bernie Rhodes and Russ Callum has said in their book. Is they said that one of the reasons they are sure that McCoy and Cooper were the same person is because on the Cooper flight... what One of the things that was left behind, including the, the clip-on tie, was a Brigham Young University medallion. Oh. So... Go Cougars, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, they had the same tie yeah. pin. They yeah. had the same exact same tie pin. Mother of Pearl. Yep, yeah. Mother of Pearl. And it was from uh, J.C. Penny. Yeah. They had the same one. That is, that's, that's the one thing that really gets me about that one. Like, how could you readily identify? And it was, it was the one that was in FBI, yeah. uh, in FBI lockup. Like, oh, that's, that's Richards. It's a, uh. The J.C. Penny Mother of Pearl tie pin. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It was the one from the Cooper flight. Yeah. Mm. How in the fuck? Well, <laughs> you know? one has to assume that was a relatively yeah at the popular time. product. I yeah. mean, whether that overcomes reasonable doubt in court, I don't know. Yeah. But still, I mean, that's it's a that's a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. Very compelling argument, Chris. Yeah. That's it's just it's too perfect. It's too weird. Like you yeah. had the box from the other one. Like I, that's mm-hmm. just. That that's my my tinfoil aim to this one. Whenever the dude's not just hopping out of planes and won't stop robbing banks. Yeah, that I mean. Oh, and uh, 
Melvin D. Walker, uh, his accomplice, was arrested shortly after without incident and ended yeah. up serving. They sent him to a supermax, and <laughs> yeah, they sent they, him to the supermax in Florence, Colorado. Yeah, and they he served uh, another twenty five years before being paroled. Yeah, but he he got out. So yeah, that was. Uh, I so want to know how you how you get twenty five years after breaking out from a fifty five year. Yes, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The well, scales were in his favor. In uh, accordance with Colorado state law, by escaping from prison, he is now a free man. <laughs> cut a deal of some kind. I don't know. So um, yeah, so now that was Richard Floyd McCoy's big day out. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's toss this over to. Kyle, because you have a story about a guy that didn't commit any crimes at all, I believe. No, this one's real, and it's a really middle-of-the-road, reasonable story that just absolutely <laughs> has to be completely accurate in the answer to our problem. It Man, sounds right to me. I'm glad we're having something really yeah. just kind of yeah. normal in contrast totally normal. to what Chris just told us. So, uh, my my favorite theory is uh, about Mr. John List. John List. John List was a church-going accountant and insurance salesman. It's always the church-going ones you got to look out for. And we, we know that the Mormon was out there knocking off churches, <laughs> knocking off banks in three different states. And like the Mormon, he uh, was a veteran serving in both World War II and in the Korean theater. Uh, in 1965, he had accepted a position of vice president and comptroller at a bank in New Jersey and had moved his family into a 19-room mansion. Doing quite well for himself. Decent home life. Making comptroller kids. money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sounds like somebody who's going to be really hard up for 200 grand. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So he was proposed by the FBI as a suspect in 1972. Uh... Largely because of the timing of his disappearance. November 9th, mm. 1971. 15 days before the hijacking. Okay. Also conveniently, the day he killed his wife, mother, and three children in their home. Oh, that's... that, that Oh, that's something that happened. <laughs> uh, so he uh, used the 9mm handgun and a twenty two caliber revolver to execution-style murder his wife, mother... His uh, daughter and youngest son, all with a single round in the head, kids as they came home from school, the mother and wife as they were moving around the home. That's brutal. He picked up his 15-year-old son after a soccer game at the high school. Son figured out something was wrong, so he took more than one shot to be put down. Jesus Christ. List cleaned the house, cut himself out of all the family photos, Said a radio to a religious station and proceeded to write a five-page letter to his pastor, justifying his actions by arguing he was saving his family's souls from the evils of the world. It was nearly a month before the bodies were discovered. Man, I'm, I'm sure that was a great moment when, because of the letter he wrote to his pastor, he shows up in heaven and his entire family looks at him and goes, What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Wait a minute! <laughs> the, uh, the, the pastor mm. was like, Well, I mean, he did save them. <laughs> he, uh... <laughs> Yeah, so he managed to stay out there pretty long. Uh, the family had been fairly reclusive, which was part of why it took forever for them to realize anything was amiss. Yeah. And because it was the 70s, that simple act of cutting himself out of all the family photos means the authorities did not have a single accurate picture of him. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. He managed to stay on the lam until 1989. Holy fuck. Whoa! Really? I knew... I knew he flew the coop, but I didn't know he was gone for 17 years. Yeah. And we can thank television. Uh, the murders were recounted on May, in May of that year on America's Most Wanted, which was in its second season. John uh, Lewis mm-hmm. was arrested on June 1st 
of the same year, thanks to a neighbor's tip. He was convicted of five counts of murder in 1990, died in prison at the age of 82 in 2008. Wow. Holy shit. So the FBI put him on the list, like I said, because of the timing of the disappearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, He matched Cooper's uh, description physically pretty much spot on. Uh, And uh, in their words, he essentially had nothing left to lose because he had just slaughtered his family. So the act of hijacking a plane and jumping out of the back of it seemed... A fairly reasonable decision. Then, then why the ransom? Why the two hundred thousand dollars? Well, if that's the case, that's what I wonder. I'm not. That's what so, doesn't line up for me. So Ralph Himmelsbach of the FBI uh, is quoted in the Los Angeles Times in 1989, shortly after the arrest, uh, makes a point that let's see, List had spent two hundred thousand dollars of his mother's savings shortly before the killing, which mm-hmm. is the exact same amount Cooper had asked for. Hmm. Wow. What the fuck did he spend $200,000 for in 1971? Couldn't get an What the hell did he buy? The Dallas Cowboys? Maybe. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, so, the boogeyman of Westfield, uh, as he was dubbed in his hometown in Jersey... Oh, what a good uh, name. Was, yeah, right? Uh, denied he was Cooper up until his yeah. death. Uh, the house itself, where the murders happened to, became kind of a local haunted house that kids would break into right up until it burnt to the ground. Wow. Probably ghouls. Definitely ghouls. Wasn't, didn't they do a movie about him too? Um, who was in it? Who was uh, uh, Robert Blake? Wasn't Robert Blake? In yes, a movie about yes, him? yes, he was. That's that's that's. I got You know what? You got to hand it to him. That's pretty fucking good casting. Uh, what <laughs> having the guy who executed his whole family with a pistol being played by the guy from Beretta and the guy who ended up executing a bunch of people <laughs> yeah, with a pistol. pistol. Yeah, worked out pretty yeah. well. God damn. What was the David Lynch movie he was in? It was him and uh, who Robert Blake? Yeah, or he the, the dude and like they're at the house party. Oh man! David Lynch movie. What time frame? When did it come out? Oh, uh, trying to think of who was in it. Uh, Bill Pullman was in it. Fucking Lone Star. Would have been in the late eighties, early nineties. Son of a bitch! Hang on, I'm going for it. That's whenever he has him call the. Uh, go ahead. Call. Where did I meet you before? In your house. I'm in there right now. And he calls the calls the landline, and he answers huh. the phone. And he's just staring at him. Have a good evening. Interesting. Super pale Robert Blake. It's been so of course. There's seen. there's a David Lynch movie with a weird party scene with a really pale man that like doesn't smile. Oh, do go on. <laughs> yeah. It's not Mulholland Drive, is it? You know, it might be. That. I haven't seen that in so long. Lost Highway. Lost Highway. Lost, Lost yeah, Highway was 97. Wow. Holy shit. Wow, I didn't realize there was that much of a golf. Because I know Blue Velvet was late 80s. So I figured it would have been around there. Blue Velvet might have been early 90s. I, might I have Blue, Blue up, Velvet though. at 1986. Okay, I'm way off. Yeah. I'm and Lost Highway was 97. Writing a very angry Oh, here it letter. is. Lost Highway Mystery Man. Interesting. So... We have uh, Richard Floyd McCoy Jr.'s Big Day Out and John List. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. Season 9 of American Horror Story. Man, my guy's just gonna... Man, my guy seems lame by comparison. Damn. Uh, we'll so... see if we can find a David Lynch movie for your guy. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> It'll be fun for everyone. There is a movie connection, but it's not David Lynch, sadly. Mm. So uh... We haven't talked about the Kid Rock connection to any of these either. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll do that. I'll tell you what. We'll talk about the Kid Rock connection once we yeah, talk Yeah, we'll do that some other time. So um, I chose a fella named Kenneth Christensen. So if you... Uh, so Kenneth Christensen, uh, in 2003, a man from Minnesota named Lyle Christensen uh, came forward convinced that his late brother Kenneth was in fact D.B. Cooper. Uh, he repeatedly contacted the author and director Nora Ephron to try and make a movie about the story, which seems a little suspect. He kept contacting the FBI, and the FBI didn't take him seriously, but he finally convinced a New York private detective named Skip Porteous uh, to pick up the story, and Porteous released a book in 2010, and this is what the book posits. Uh, Kenneth Christensen uh, joined the Army in 1944 and trained as a paratrooper. Uh, although the war was over by the time he deployed, he did take part in many training jumps while stationed in Japan in the late 1940s as part of the occupation force. Uh, he stayed in the Army until 1954, when he then joined Northwest Orient Airlines as first a mechanic and then a flight purser based out of Seattle Airport. Uh, given that he was born in 1926, Christensen would have been 45 years old at the time of the hijacking matching Cooper's age, and he had a similar height and build to Cooper. Um, Christensen also smoked, as did Cooper, and his go-to drink was a bourbon and soda, according to his brother Lyle, which Cooper ordered twice. Uh, Christensen was also left-handed, as was Cooper, indicated by the side on which the tie clip, the mother of pearl tie clip, was applied. Uh, flight attendant Florence Schaffner, remember her, uh, when seeing photos of Christensen from the Times, and that he did very closely resemble her description of Cooper's features. Uh, a few months after the hijacking, Christensen reportedly purchased a house with cash. Hmm. Uh, while dying of cancer in 1994, he told his brother Lyle, quote, There is something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Now, after his death... How are you just going to blue ball your brother on your deathbed like that? I know. That's fucked up. That's unfortunate. I don't even feel bad that he was sick. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a dick move. Yeah. So after his death, family members discovered a stash of gold coins and a very valuable stamp collection, clocking in at $56,000 worth of stamps, along with secret bank accounts totaling over two hundred grand. <laughs> they also found a folder filled with Northwest Orient Airline news clippings that began about the time Christensen was hired in 1954, but ceased three days before the hijacking occurred in 1971. And despite the fact that the hijacking was one of the most momentous news events in the airline's history, no further news clippings were discovered. Christensen continued to work for the airline part-time until Northwest Orient was became Northwest Airlines <laughs> in the late 80s, but he never clipped another news story. <laughs> and so, after that evidence came forward, the FBI actually did investigate Christensen as a potential suspect. However, they have never released a conclusive statement as to whether or not they think he might have actually been the guy. <laughs> I, I thought that was interesting because of his personal connection to Northwest Orient. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. And then making a substantial purchase with mm -hmm. a shitload of twenties. Yeah. So the one thing that that was interesting to me is in all, in every single the one every single one of the guys that we talked about, there's always um, we always say like, oh, he matched the description of 
of D.B. Cooper. But if you read the descriptions, they're all wildly different, different, depending on who you ask. Like, even the stewardesses said that he would, like, Witness, one had him at, yeah. like, 6'5", and then yeah. the other one had him at, like, 5'8". Witness statements, even when you're up close and personal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you're in a high-stress situation, are notoriously unreliable. Yeah, and, but they uh, you can read them all. They're all out there. Mm-hmm. You can go to FBI, you go to the FBI website, and you can read all about this oh, case. Oh, yes. It's so, all in there. We have, um... What, what's in, another interesting thing about the Cooper case is that it spawned a ton of copycat hijackings. However, before we do this, I have one final little conspiracy theory I want to share. It's Don Draper. Not that. Oh, come on. That's a good one. The Mad Men theory. It's Not Don Draper, one. just so everybody knows. But actually, it does involve a rather interesting character. Now, of course, this conspiracy theory is bullshit. However, there are a few people who actually do believe it. And it's one of my favorite suspects theories, it's gained traction, I don't know how, is that D.B. Cooper was, in fact, the film director Tommy Wiseau, who used the (laughs) ransom money to finance the production of his infamous 2003 film, The Room. I... Everybody's like, you're see it's fucking great. I watched four minutes of that movie. I was like, this is just stupid. Like, this is just awful, and I'm not wasting my time. I'm taking over the plane. I have a bomb. Oh, hi, Mark. Like... (laughs) So where this actually came from is there was a satirical webcomic called X, XKCD that was big in the mid-2000s. And it was, it was posited on there, and it's completely a joke, but the, the funny thing is it just started steamrolling, and there's actually a lot of people who take it seriously. because how everything off, happens, man. Everything who, starts well, on 4 Well, nobody actually knows how old Tommy Wiseau is. <laughs> do, do I think he was in his mid-40s in the 70s? Somehow, I think not. So... So the problem is Wiseau is clearly like 25 squirrels in a skin suit pretending to be human. Well, and I can't imagine what a storm at 10,000 feet is going to do to that skin suit. Rip it clean open, man. I so, guess that maybe that's yeah. why they, he got away. They all had their own little parachutes. Think about it. Squirrel in a parachute doesn't put up much of a radar signal. No, think about it. Mm-hmm. Still be shit scared if one of those hit the canopy of your fighter plane. <laughs> How? So, let's talk about some of the copycats. So, there were apparently 15 hijackings similar to Cooper's, all of one, all except one of which happened in 1972. So, 15 in a year that went off this guy. Now, Chris, you already talked about Floyd McCoy Jr., but there are some others. So, the first to imitate Cooper was a Canadian named Paul Joseph Cini, who hijacked an Air Canada DC-8 over Montana, bringing a shotgun and a parachute with him, See, and he just got on the plane. What that's the a, that's fuck a lot was for a, That's a lot for a carry-on, I gotta say. I feel like you could have lit your cigarette with your handgun in 71 on an airplane. Yeah, so he... <laughs> and your name, sir? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, he's Canadian. Your name, sir? Oh, yeah. Oh, so, God. He, he then attempts to rob the passengers and crew, but he ended up being overpowered by passengers and crew when he put down the shotgun to strap on the parachute. <laughs> credit to the credit to the passengers and the crew. Like everybody, like looks at the gun and looks at each other. Showtime. Showtime yeah. <laughs> now, uh, so we also have Garrett Brock Trapnell, who uh, hijacked a TWA flight. Uh, demanded the oddly specific amount of three hundred and six thousand eight hundred dollars in cash. Uh, he also demanded the release of political activist Angela Davis and an audience with President Richard Nixon. Uh, but when the plane landed at JFK to refuel, he uh, FBI agents stormed the plane. He was shot, wounded, and arrested. 
Uh, we also have Richard LaPointe, who was an Army veteran who used what he said was a bomb to hijack a Hughes Air West DC-9 in Las Vegas while it was still on the runway. Uh, he demanded only 50 grand, two parachutes, and a helmet. Uh, he, he ordered the plane to fly towards Denver, and he bailed out over northeastern Colorado. Unfortunately, northeastern Colorado is nothing but flat, treeless plains, and authorities used both a locator in the parachute and LaPointe's own footprints in the snow to apprehend him within a couple hours. Uh, we have Fred Hahnemann, who hijacked an Eastern Airlines flight in Allentown, PA, demanded $300,000 in a parachute, and had the plane flown all the way to Honduras, where he then parachuted out. Uh, he initially escaped, but he did surrender a month later at the U.S. Embassy in Tegucigalpa. Uh, we have Martin McNally, who commanded an Amer who commandeered an American Airlines 727 flying from St. Louis to Tulsa. He got himself $500,000 in ransom, and then bailed out over Peru, Indiana, but lost all the money on the way down. Oh. <laughs> you just picture it. Yeah. <laughs> like, as, like, as you're jumping out of the plane, just look over your shoulder and just all the money's just yeah. gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was apprehended two days later in Detroit. He apparently had managed to gather a little bit of the money, stuffed it in his pockets, and the uh, bank where he attempted to deposit this cash notified the FBI when the serial numbers were flagged. So finally, the last Cooper Tribute Act actually didn't come about until July of 1980, when a man named Glenn Tripp seized Northwest Airlines Flight 608 at Seattle Airport, uh, demanded 600 grand, two parachutes, and the assassination of his boss. <laughs> so... However, a quick-thinking flight attendant secretly drugged his drink with a shitload of Valium, and during a 10-hour standoff, Tripp reduced his demands from everything we just mentioned down to three cheeseburgers and a head start on getting away. <laughs> That's a pretty good negotiator. That's pretty good. That's pretty decent. But he was soon, uh, soon peacefully apprehended. However, on January 21st, 1983, whilst still on probation... Trip hijacked the same flight, Seattle Flight Six or Northwest Airlines Flight Six Hundred Eight, uh, this time en route in the sky, and demanded to be flown to Afghanistan. Which, by the way, I remind you, was in the middle of a war. This was during the Soviet invasion yeah. of Afghanistan. I don't know what his plan was there. I, I mean, have no idea. Well, I, I guess they're not going to come look for you in, in you know Soviet-occupied Afghanistan. Probably not. Uh, but it's was, like one of the very few places in the world you can be yeah. you could be absolutely 100 percent sure that there's not gonna be a bunch of like a bunch of gumshoes flatfoots out there <laughs> <G-men>. <laughs> but he was shot and killed sadly when FBI agents stormed the plane after it landed in Portland man that's a that's a story so Cooper's final fate what do we think happened? He right? fucking died he hopped out of yeah. the plane and sucked his shoes off it probably <laughs> tore most of his clothes off yeah and he landed in a Thanksgiving Day driving rainstorm. Well, I mean, it's at night. Yeah. In the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, with no helmet, in the trees. Yeah. So he has no helmet, no protective clothing, no shoes. And he landed somewhere where he had no idea where he was, and he fucking died there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know what, I don't think he even made it to the ground either. It's, mm-hmm. like I said, it, as soon as you hopped out of the plane, because they were at like 35,000 feet. 10, 000, oh, they were, oh, that's right, they dropped down. Because they were in the storm. Which, where the air's thin, but you can still breathe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's like 10,000 10, to 12,000 feet is standard skydiving altitude. 
to. Mm. Yeah, and they so never pressurized the plane. They never so, pressurized yeah. the plane. So it's not like you got sucked Could you out. imagine how fucking cold it would be? Can you imagine how fucking loud it would be? Oh, God. Yeah, that would And be, that's the thing, like... That would be unpleasant. This isn't like a like the ramp that comes down the side of the planes. This is right <laughs> out the back. Mm-hmm. Right out the back. Right out the back. Uh, so you're going to get all of the jet wash. Yeah. Well, There's no way you're going into the slipstream. That's going to knock him out. This is why he... Uh, this is my theory about why he never made it to the ground. So... Yeah, the seven, a Boeing 727, if you don't know what it looks like, has three large jet engines on the back of it. Mm-hmm. It has nothing on the wings. The flaps on the 727 are also set down at 15 degrees, which means that the airflow over the tops of the wings, due to the Bernoulli effect, ends up being directed downward and away from the back of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. This means that if Cooper pulled the cord and deployed his chute too soon, if he indeed ever got to pull the cord, it's very likely that the combination of these two forces may have collapsed his parachute tangling the lines and causing him to end up as a splatter on the ground. Uh, the other factor to this is that he selected the older of the two primary parachutes provided, and the reserve chute he selected was actually a dummy yeah, chute it was a training with an dummy. inoperable rip cord intended for classroom demonstrations, and he cannibalized the functional reserve chute to secure the money bag to his body. Mm-hmm. Now, the FBI stresses that the inclusion of the dummy chute was purely accidental, uh, as the shoots were obtained in haste from a Seattle skydiving school. Now, Cooper, there's also a third factor, I think. Cooper jumped without a helmet. And if enough velocity is obtained within free fall, and that chute is deployed and your velocity mm-hmm. slows down so quick, it's Newton's third law. There's going to be a reaction. It is possible for your head to snap back against that pack so hard yep. that it can cause potentially lethal injury if the head is unprotected. So, yeah, there's there's Jack going, oh, we think you should wrap it up, guys. So, yeah, I think that's yeah, we've all been drinking to, the whole time anyway. So. I think it's a good place to wrap things up. <coughs> I don't know about you fellas, but uh, that's the story of D.B. Cooper. It is. It really is. I had fun. Yeah, it, this it's always interesting whenever we get to do somebody for a change where we can actually find shit out about them. Yes. Like, even though... Well, relatively speaking. But, like, we know we know exactly what happened. Like, we have a full timeline events with D.B. Cooper up until the point where he leaves the plane. Yeah. We know everything that happened. Everything's very well documented. We have all that. Um, and then we really get to go bananas. Yeah. You know, we really get to go off on a lot of this. There's no... Yeah, like, whatever we were doing, King John. Everybody that wrote... The history of King John had an axe to grind. Yeah. Or Here, it's just it's after. just a pure statement of fact. A yeah. lot of the articles that I found, and you can find one now, um, if you look up McCoy, is um, from the New York Times. Yeah. You can find the article mm-hmm. published in the Times it, from whenever they broke out of jail. Even to the it's license plates on the cars yeah. they were driving. It's fascinating. Oh, yeah. it, it is first-hand material, which is mm-hmm. great but there's, to have. There's, in my mind, there's absolutely 0% chance... That this cat survived the jump. Uh, he, uh, yeah, I don't. It's think just, he survived to spend the money. Yeah, there's no way. And the, the money just, they found way upstream yeah. from where they said he landed. And uh, whenever they did find the, it was that that eight year old boy yeah. found it in well, the Columbia River. They said he landed. There's also yeah. a million ways. It, it was it was southwest and upstream. It's it's buried. bizarre. Yeah. So but they, they said the money also appeared to be um, buried naturally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it was never spent, never turned up. They had photographs of every single yeah. bill that was used. We don't know. They if had it all was the serial numbers. Or not. We know nothing. It's that's what's interesting is all the questions that still remain over over what happened. And it's also kind of fun too having everything in this story happen in the span of a day. The only other time we've covered that is the death of Blackbeard, which is kind of 
which is kind of fun. I like having to, you know, not unpack somebody's entire life just yeah talking about this. And also, it's always fun to talk about conspiracy theories. Yeah, they, there are some that are pretty pretty tinfoily. Um, the ones that we talked about, not as much. They're they're definitely more straightforward. Mm-hmm. But there's just so many points in all of them where, like, Jesus Christ, it's got to be him. You know, there's there's yeah. always that kernel mm-hmm. of truth mm-hmm. where, like, holy fuck, what if it is him? Something's like, hmm, okay. Well, I mean, except for the conspiracy theory that this was a false flag operation to make people have to go through airport security, or that it's Don Draper, or that it's Don Draper. <laughs> I don't think it's likely that Don he Draper, celebrated not actual person, Don yeah. Draper. It, it's also refreshing to dig into one of these where, with the exception of my boy John List, uh, no one got hurt. I wouldn't go around calling John List your boy. <laughs> Fair. You know, it, he robbed an insurance company essentially. Yeah, that's why I. That's why I'm on Team Cooper for fine, this. But yeah, you know? well, yeah, that's the thing. He robbed the. He robbed an airline. He robbed an insurance company. He is this Robin Hood figure. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's not like he didn't rob the passengers or the no. crew or anything like that. He, he gave the stewardess a note, and it said, "I have a bomb in my briefcase. I will use it if necessary. I want you to sit next to me. You are being hijacked." Fuck you. Show me. <laughs> and that's and that's what he passed her, and it was, and then that was, that was it. I mean, it, there was no. It, this is what's happening. We're going to do this. Everybody, be cool. It's not your money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he hopped out of a fucking airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man. So yeah, so that's the story of DB Cooper, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you had as much. Fun yeah, this one got did. pretty beefy. I uh, I had a great time. I don't know about you boys. We didn't talk about the Kid Rock part. Oh, Kid Rock! We didn't talk about the Kid Rock part. Oh, we can make a few minutes. Man, that was from Kid the Rock. Devil Without a Cause album, uh, from Ball with a Ball. That, yeah. that was uh, that was Joe C's second Joe to last C's album. Second to last album. <laughs> <laughs> Did he make the next one? Yeah, I don't remember. I think so. He had to. I don't know. We'll do a Kid Rock episode. We're gonna whenever Kid Rock really has his full bone meltdown, we'll be able to do a Kid well, Rock we, episode. I feel like we have to wait until after he wins the twenty twenty four presidential. That Senator Kid Rock to you, you. pal. Uh, I, somebody said he's not. I thought I heard that he's not doing that anymore. His his senatorial aspirations oh, are gone. He, now. he suspended that a long time ago. But the yeah, like he, Senate, but he was still gonna float it around. But, but now I guess Senate he's finally majority gone. leader Rock <laughs> is. And it's and it's Senate Majority Leader Rock, comma Kid, not somebody Senate Majority Leader Rock, comma Chris or Rock, comma the. To D. B. Cooper and the money he took, you can look for answers, but it ain't that fun. I thought I had fun. I thought he's full of shit. Yeah, I had fun looking for the answers. I enjoyed it. Yeah, fuck you, Kid Rock. You know what? I am gonna get in the pit and try and love someone. Okay. okay, I'm not gonna do Kid Rock. No, so yeah, I'm gonna so, write my own Kid Rock episode. So yeah, uh, if you would like us to do a Kid Rock episode, uh, you can get in contact with us. Chris, how can they do that? <laughs> if you really want me to do a fucking Kid Rock episode, don't contact me. Contact like professional help. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need contact you need, Kid Rock's legal team. You need more help than I could possibly provide for you. But we would love it if you would drop us an email. Uh, at trrpod at gmail.com if you guys have any suggestions anything you'd like to uh, drop for us you can reach us there at all times you can find us at uh, trrpod on Instagram and you can find us on Twitter at uh, podcast trr yep Um, also if you like what we do and you think uh, it might be worth a little bit of scrilla um, www.patreon.com slash trr 
pod. Yeah, if you demand $200,000 from the FBI and jump out of a plane, you can send us some. Yeah, you can afford to give us a buck a month. You yeah. can get in at the cabin boy level. Or the flat rate. We do have the $10,000 Grand Poobah level. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Still that, very few takers well, on that's that That's the one. thing. If you give through Patreon, you don't have to worry about us checking the serial numbers on the cash. Bingo. That is a big, big upside. That's how I'm laundering most of my money. Yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, look at the time. Gotta go. <laughs> yeah, we gotta wrap up. So, yeah, uh, special thanks, as always, to the Bloody Seaman for letting us use their music. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Kyle Graper Yeah, for being big here thanks today. to Kyle. Good to be back. I think Kyle, for his yard time. For the next episode? I certainly think I can manage right, that. Looking forward to that. Speaking of the next episode, as I said at the very beginning of this, it is spooky season, y'all. So we're going to be doing... A Halloween special, but you know what? I don't think I'm going to tell you what it's about yet because uh, be a little, little spooky. That'll surprise. be the, that'll be the trick and treat. Yeah. So um, if uh, if you're going to go out there, uh, put a fake bomb in a suitcase, hijack a plane, latch on a parachute. Um, my advice to what you have to do with that parachute when you jump out of that plane is, uh, of course, hold fast to the parachute, y'all. Bye. Mm-hmm. And don't kill your family.